0: It's like the reefer madness right, of horror movies. Exactly.
1: <laughs> it was a watershed moment and really changed the trajectory of horror.
0: Forever. Oh, yeah. The people that know it know it, and it still makes a profound impression.
1: Honestly, horror movies are so amazingly brilliant right now.
0: Welcome to October, the most <laughs> frightful month of the year and it's our favorite month because a lot of times people that aren't maybe that interested in horror movies throughout the year get interested for Halloween and that's where we come in. Welcome to the Fright Club podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, and we are from madwolf.com. We've got a new location. We're doing Fright Club live. We're here at the Upper Arlington Public Library right here. It's a lovely library. It is. Very nice room. Very nice room and uh We've been invited to do a little, a little bit something different, I think, for uh, the Fright Club podcast this time. Normally we talk about, you know, five, if we have the fuzzy math, maybe six or so movies, and then we show one. For uh,
1: instance, our last podcast was on the five best toilet-related death scenes.
0: Right. Because that's how classy exactly. we keep it.
1: That's right. It was surprisingly <laughs> popular, actually. It was. That, was.
0: that was a lot of fun, <laughs> and we one of the one of the parts in that we had fun with me thinking the word commode was so funny
1: and pink paradox our senior norwegian correspondent pointed out that in norwegian commode is a dresser which is good to know just yeah so because that could have been a really messy well that brings up
0: even more possibilities for comedy so we appreciate that Um, all the great feedback we got for that podcast and that we want to say we want to give a shout out we've got a new listener here in the last couple of weeks. Jenny. We, we want to say hi to Jenny.
1: Yeah, because she's awesome. Because she tweets at us all the time. And she took a picture. She's put together her October list. And she took a photo of it. And it's it's. It's all our movies. It's like the woman in Calvert. It's like ever It's like she's got Takashi Miike on that like underlined Gozu and oh, she's got yeah. So she's our people. This is yeah, what I'm saying. She is,
0: and she's in for a great time oh, yeah. because if she's just discovering these movies now, some of the time I expect to get like a, a message saying, "What's wrong with you people?" Right. Yeah. But you never know. She might be. Yeah. She might be. you know. I we mean, like.
1: She. She really like, enjoyed the woman, and that's 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 a high watermark. That if you is. Can, if you can enjoy that film. Right. Then, You're one of us.
0: So welcome. Welcome, Jenny. We'd love to have you as a Fright Clubber. So again, we're here doing it live, Upper Arlington Public Library in Columbus, Ohio, and we thought we'd call this A Brief History of Horror. Because
1: you like to title stuff, and you're really good at it. I like to title stuff. It does.
0: I really do, and I thought that fits (laughs) because we're not doing the movie. We're not doing the one category to focus on, you know, something really serious like toilets. Um, (laughs) Yeah. We're going to start back, and this was something that we, we kind of uh, came to in talking with the library people here. Yeah. To just kind of start back uh, for people that are just interested mainly for the scary Halloween stuff, maybe not yeah. year-round horror people, just no, to give them a quick overview. Just some of the
1: most important films, like important films in the genre because it's a genre that is much blind, and not that many people really take it that seriously. But one of the things that you can find in um, popular horror is that it really it clarifies, it articulates the most sort of prevalent social anxieties of every era. Uh, and then you can usually also d- kind of predict what's going to be the most popular type of film in the next decade by what is the most popular film in one decade. Like, you can always see one of them jump to the top and transcend and become sort of the front runner for the next type of films. So, for example, Godzilla. That's that, probably
0: the most famous one that you That pretty clearly
1: to. pointed to what they were really freaked out about right then. Um, you know, this... Monster uh, comes out of the sea because of nuclear um, war, and, uh, and then after that...
0: Nuclear weapons, specifically right. nuclear bombing and testing, yeah. so that... And then
1: after that, basically every horror film that came out in the 1950s was a monster movie, was, was science-based giant mutant monsters, science was going to kill us all, there was nothing we could do about it, we were all completely helpless in the face of what was going on with politics and science, and clearly... Had a big, Godzilla had a very big effect on horror.
0: Yeah, and you could see those the types of themes go throughout every decade, all yeah. the way up to here just a couple of years ago. We had get out, and that, you know, the, the, these very serious racial fears and anxieties that are going on uh, in the country right now. That was a perfect encapsulation of that. So uh, we'll get back through all of that stuff as we are going to go. How far are we going to go back when go we talk ahead. about this? Going back to the 1920s, way, way back.
1: Welcome to the 1920s.
0: <laughs> Flappers are coming in here soon. That's
1: right. The biggest thing about the 1920s is that we had just come out of World War I, and it was the first global war. So in almost every horror film, there is this sort of you know, cloaked, mysterious, Eastern European evil that people were contending with. But the other thing that you can really see in it is that it's the first war where a lot of soldiers returned, From injuries where they would not have previously, and so people saw maimed, disfigured soldiers in a way that they had never done before, and so those two things really, really figured into horror of the era. Uh, And in American horror, Lon Chaney was a god. He was everything. He was, you know, all the things. And of all of his films of the 1920s, probably the the most well remembered and the most iconic is *Phantom of the Opera*. But it's weird, given the war, and it actually caused a lot of problems at the time. Americans picketed against German films. They didn't want to send money to Germany right after World War I, but it happens that also the three nations that actually had money to make movies were Germany, France, and the United States. So that's where basically all the movies were coming from at the time. And the best horror films were coming from Germany. And one of the things that was most interesting, you can see it in Murnau's Nosferatu, Personal favorite. Um, but I think for those listening on the podcast, <laughs> Hope right.
0: has her very fetching Nosferatu dress. That's right, it's a dress. Are, we'll be sure to post on social media again, but it's <laughs> very attention-getting. We've got the, the the same picture up there because that has become an iconic s- symbol and image in horror.
1: Right, and then the other image that people are going to recognize that obviously has a very has had a very long-lasting impression. Right, Conrad Conrad Veidt's face in the the film The Man Who Laughs, which obviously went on to inspire the Joker.
0: Um, yeah, I think you could probably show that picture to someone who has no idea, and that they would think of the Joker. Right, and that's exactly. very clearly an inspiration for the look of the Joker. Yeah,
1: but I think maybe for me, the most important film of the decade was The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. So the two film, the screenwriters had both served in the military in Germany, and they wrote the film. Sort of based on not only their recollections of the horrors of war, but the way they felt society was moving in Germany. That people were blindly following, believing in what the authority figures in the government was telling them, and that in fact those people were the wrong people to listen to, and that we were all going to wind up nuts. (laughs) And it was, you know, and it's also, of course, an absolutely, utterly gorgeous film. It um, is. Like, probably the, the uh, horror or not, the best example of an expressionistic film that, they, that made, uh, they made almost exclusively in Germany in the 1920s. But it was, I mean, it just looked like nothing else.
0: And the funny thing is, a lot of the way it looked came out of just the necessity of, such, of having such a low budget. And the things that they did to make do with the set design, with, with paint and other s- sorts of props that they had, ended up actually making it look so unique, so unlike anything else, to even, even to this day. And you brought up the writers. Uh, one of the, I think, one of the themes they were going for in the movie was they had a, a real passionate distrust about the misuse of power. Yeah. Which I think comes out in this movie, and of course that a lot of foreshadowing there. Indeed. With what was to come, and this play, this actually played at a theater in Paris for seven years. Wow. Seven straight years, and it's become just an an, an incredible film, and probably a, a good choice for the one indelible movie horror movie to come out of the 1920s.
1: Yep. We moved to the 30s, which is really just this period in between world wars.
0: (laughs) We're just biding our time. That's
1: right. We don't have that much else to do, so let's all go see monster movies. So it was, you know, it was a really big time, obviously, in the United States for Universal. It was their, you know, the sweet spot for Universal. And again, I think that you see a lot of the same themes carried over. Shadowy, lurking, Eastern European evil, monsters. And a lot of times uh, you saw sympathetic monsters especially in the United States I think there was a particular sense maybe for the first time of really what a soldier went through and uh, becoming a killing machine but at the same time being sort of a human being and I think that you saw that reflected in a lot of the horror films of the time um, and then Todd Browning of course uh, rose to prevalence uh, with some of the biggest movies of the time Dracula clearly freaks which is our favorite
0: yeah, Freaks, which, which continues today to, to have a, a cultural impact. In fact, I just saw, what was the trailer that I brought up to you? I just saw a trailer before a movie the other night, and they used one of us, <laughs> one of us. And I could tell there, were just, there weren't that many people in the theater that got it. I laughed out loud. And so the people that know it know it, and it still makes a profound impression because that movie is one of those that you point to. Today, you could never make it. Watching it is, you're glad that they were able to make it. Not right. at the expense of these, of these people, but the fact that it made this statement that it made.
1: Well, it's still an incredibly provocative film because Tom Browning, first of all, ended his career, basically. He was like the most sought-after filmmaker ever because of the success of Dracula. Mm-hmm. And then he made Freaks the following year, and it basically ended his career. Uh, because, of course, he used actual people with physical and mental disabilities to play the Freaks in the film. And he he said that he did it because he had worked in the circus for such a long time that he was just very comfortable with uh, that kind of talent and that he was not exploiting them. But if you watch the movie, it's hard to go that way. It's hard to go, oh, I don't feel like we're exploiting Pinhead right now. I kind of think we are. I sort of think we are, and I'm going to go to hell because I'm enjoying this movie. <laughs> so it's, um, <laughs> it's an interesting film, certainly, and it's interesting the way that it has, I think for a lot of really diehard horror fans, it's eclipsed Dracula. There are so many Draculas, and there are a lot, there are a lot of versions of Dracula that I personally think are much better versions than the Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, uh, that Freaks just continues to be a much more kind of fascinating film to talk through. But then also, Theodore Dreyer made Vampire which is a French film and a gorgeous, glorious, surrealistic kind of horror that they'd gotten away from in the 30s, that they made a lot of in the 20s, especially in foreign foreign, uh, films were made to sort of evoke this surrealistic nightmare. And we'd really gotten away from it in the United States. So it was just really nice to see something that... Made a lot of money internationally. I mean, he also went on to make Joan of Arc. It was one of those things where it wasn't uh it wasn't a genre filmmaker. It was just a, a filmmaker making an art movie that happened to be a horror film. But here's our one-two punch.
0: <laughs> that's a good one-two punch. That's right, Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. And I I think if you just took that image of the of the Frankenstein the Frankenstein monster that that's got to be one of if you had to pick just one iconic horror image that would be right up there in the top. I mean. She's great, too. In fact, for my money, this is probably even better. But I mean, that has that has just transcended all time and space to sum up horror movies. Boris Karloff is the as the monster of Frankenstein.
1: Yeah. And we've talked about we've talked about all the kind of iterations of Frankenstein. And one of the reasons that James Whale's version of Frankenstein, I think, is the most compelling besides the phenomenal makeup is that most other versions of, of Frankenstein are fascinated with Dr. Frankenstein. Um, and he wasn't. He was much more interested in what he could do with this monster, and I think that's one of the reasons, really, that the Frankenstein monster is so iconic today. He's just like an overgrown child. It's almost impossible not to empathize with him, even when he throws a child into the river. You're like, oh, he's not so bad, though. Really? But then when James Will came back just three years later and he made The Bride of Frankenstein, uh, still teasing a lot of the plot points from Mary Shelley's novel, uh, he had an opportunity to do something really subversive for 1935, which is basically kind of have a feminist film with a gay male lead, Mm -hmm. which is awesome. I mean, that's just so amazing that he accomplished that in 1935.
0: Which is so funny when you look into the history of the film and and find out all the areas that the censors at the time had problems with. Those two areas were not part of what they had problems with. They actually did have to cut a lot of the movie. So it, it only runs about 70, what, three minutes long? Yeah, it's very short. And that's even with a padded scene to uh, make up about another five or six minutes. But yeah, you're right. Getting those two things in there, very subversive for the time. And we actually talk a lot about this movie specifically. We've got an upcoming episode of Fright Club that we recorded with our buddy Dina Tripodis where we just talk about this movie and this the movie Bride only. of
1: Frankenstein, the entire episode. So we're part of a, like a big sort of podcast collection, and uh, each one of us is taken for a week. We're talking about just one of the Universal sequels, and somehow we landed Bride of Frankenstein. Woo So there's an entire yeah, the it'll be the week of the week of Halloween. Our yeah. entire podcast is dedicated to the Bride of Frankenstein.
0: Yes, yeah, so that's and that's a good one to dissect. Um, and that's, yeah, that's a good one one two punch it to is. send us out of the 30s.
1: It is. 1940s is World War II. These are the World War II films. Uh, the, you know, the films that really um, came from the horror that people had just gone through. And it's also a little bit of just beating a dead horse because there's an awful lot more universal monsters. Because, again, it's the same kind of a themes that were really sort of popular with people. It's this spooky Eastern Europe. It's a monster that looks like a maimed soldier. It's, it's a, a good guy monster that still is able to kill people. I mean, it's still a lot of the same themes that were really interesting to people, although they became less and less and less interesting the more sequels we went through. But at the same time, RKO shot up. So they had less money for makeup. And with Val Luton, who, who ran RKO, you, we found they, they did a lot more uh, psychological, sort of spooky think-about-it horror. So it was a nice change of pace. It was a nice sort of second option, although some of their films... Their films are really amazing to watch. They usually look gorgeous. They usually have great performances. And they're always a little bit weird. They are also always either racist and or sexist. Absolutely never doesn't happen. In an RKU, it's not even possible. What is this? What's happening here? That's not even a main scene in the movie. It's just in the poster. Oh, my God, there's a black man carrying that unconscious white woman. That's like this big of that movie. Um and so it and it was just really interesting. Also, cat people, which I love cat people, but the whole plot was if she gets sexually excited, she'll kill someone. <laughs>
0: like it's just you know, I mean,
1: there are so many horror films all throughout the decades, it's, right? It's
0: like the it's like the reefer madness right. of horror movies. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So
1: I mean there is a I mean there is a huge arm of horror that's really structured entirely on Female hysteria, like sexual hysteria among women, there are hundreds of movies, but none that is as blatant as this one. And at the same time, it's just as charming as it can be.
0: (laughs) So it's got that going for it.
1: But the big one, Wolfman. Yeah, the big one, uh, 1941 Wolfman. uh, Back to Universal, of course. Back to the uh, the monster makeup and everything. But uh, I think that of all films that best represent. Sort of that World War II hangover. This is another one. It's like, it's set in England. Is it? Germany? What? Like the, the, it's just sort of this weird group, grouping of European nations that seem to be like good people. They all have different accents. There are castles there. There's a lot of fog. We don't know. But you know what? They're great. And there is some villain, and the villain is definitely German, because Wolfsbane. And everybody look out. Gypsies know what's going on. <laughs> They're afraid. I mean, the whole thing is just so very World War II. And of course, Lon Cheney Jr., who's just a big old lummox of an American, right? He's like the only clear American in there. He's like three times as big as everybody else. Just like, oh, shucks. I'm such an American. And then, you know, he's so, you feel so bad for him. Your well, heart just bleeds for him. And as
0: they say in the song, his hair was perfect. <laughs> But, but look, doesn't
1: he, I mean, especially with his, kind of looks more like a wild boar, doesn't he? Uh, to me, I think so. Which makes them, I guess, that much more endearing. I'm kidding, honey. I love wolves.
0: <laughs> this movie, actually, it's staying power. One of the ways it can be looked at is through the myths, the, the popular culture about werewolves came from this movie. Not the fact that it, that it can be passed on through a bite, uh, the, past that, the uh, fact that only one of the ways you could kill a werewolf is with a silver bullet. Those are just two of the things that originated with this movie. It also had, you talked about the uh, aspect of World War II. The writer was actually, it was influenced by uh, his experience in Nazi Germany. Bringing... I bet it wasn't good.
1: I feel like nobody had a very good experience in Nazi Germany. Uh,
0: no, not so much. But <laughs> the fact that the main character was just a normal person who was then transformed into a killing machine, right. sort of a metaphor for yeah. what he saw in Nazi Germany. Yeah. So, again, with the themes of what was going on in a population, not only in a country, but with the world, uh, can be seen in The Wolfman. And
1: then the 50s, which is all about the Cold War, 100%. And Fonzie. No, it's not about Fonzie. Damn. Almost every American horror film that came out in the 1950s is to some degree about the Cold War, anxiety about communism, the spread of communism, anxiety about science running amok and, and filling the country with giant ants that are going to eat you. And to find anything else, you really had to look outside the United States. So uh, l- just like RKO came up in the, in the 1940s and 1950s is the birth of Hammer Horror. And they gave us a completely different type of super campy, in no way believable horror movies to watch. Because, but the best thing they did for me was Christopher Lee. So they, they made Christopher Lee Dracula, and that's a good choice. It
0: is. First off, he's so physically imposing. He's yeah. so tall. Was he like 6'5"? Yeah. You know, so he had the physical stature and just the way he moved and the way he talked. Yes. I mean, that is an iconic image of Dracula. He's got that
1: saucy baritone going on. <laughs> and that's one of the things. And, and it's one of the things that Hammer knew how to do better than anybody else was to make the horror, like, ribald. It's like, you know what I mean? The, the, the women who succumbed to Christopher Lee's Dracula, they were all about it. <laughs> they were not victims at all. They were like, come on, sailor. And it was just such a much more fun way to go about what were really by that, you know, even by the 1950s, very tired stories. Uh, But they, I mean, they they went strong for another decade and a half. Uh, And then, but here in the United States also, we had a couple of great ones, of course, the the very iconic uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and then The Bad Seed, which earned five Oscar nominations and a win. Yeah. Which was, at that point, unheard of for a horror film. Mm -hmm. Absolutely unheard of for a horror
0: film. Still, uh, any kind of Oscar attention for horror films is is pretty rare. Yes. But again, the big one was Godzilla. Not to be confused with Godzilla, King of the Monsters, because I know when I was a kid, that's the first one I saw, and so you're always thinking, oh, it's that one with Raymond Burr. No, it's not. No,
1: I thought you were going to say Godzuki. I totally thought he was going to say that.
0: And you know what? (laughs) You should also not confuse it with Godzuki. I knew she thought I was going to say Godzuki. (laughs) So I did.
1: Right. Ishiro Hondo's original was, again, it was, it was, you know, it was a Japanese film, so there's a lot of very clear references to Hiroshima to the fear of what's going to happen when governments have this scientific power, that they are just going to unleash willy-nilly, and there's going to be no real way. And it's funny because I think it's almost as if the wish is that. This thing that they unleash will just take care of it. just take care of it, right just kill us all just whatever we don't know what we 're doing anymore. Godzilla do you, uh, which I love actually. I love about that original film
0: yeah, and of course, through all the many many sequels, that message got watered down yes. uh, throughout the, the decades, but it, to, to view it in the in the prism of the time it came out is still extremely effective, uh, and the monster you know the the, uh, the horror that came out of nuclear bombs and nuclear testing, which, of course, the horror that came out of to their nation yes. uh, from the war can be seen in, in this monster movie. One that I think you just passed by, we were going to mention, from the 1950s, Diabolique.
1: Oh, right. Which yeah, I always, always want to
0: bring up because my mom always says one of the ones that scared her half to death when, yeah. she, was, when she was younger. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's funny. In the the, it's the end of the nineteen fifties, Diabolique, and it moved into the nineteen sixties with Eyes Without a Face, which I'm going to talk about in a second. There was the, the French had sort of a sudden upstart in in horror movies that just made the rest of the world go, God, you're so French! Like, why do you have to be better at better at everything than us? Like the movies were so stylish, like effortlessly stylish and cool. And Diabolique, yeah, had this crazy great third act reveal. Yes, um, that even now is is really fun to watch.
0: It is. It's it's very early take on the old, I guess, something on the manner of Sixth Sense, where like, don't tell. Right. You yes, know, exactly. Do not tell, yeah. because it is an, an, a real fun reveal. Um, and then, of course, it was ma- remade uh, to not very like 90s, much success in yeah. the 90s. Sharon Stone. But, but that original, has it has that look about it. And uh, still, if you can, even if you watch it today, knowing that reveal, yeah. it's still fun. You it can, is. Then you can deconstruct how they set it up, and they set it up so brilliantly. So I know we wanted to mention that one. So...
1: And we're gonna move into the 60s,
0: swinging 60s, right. yeah, baby. That's right, yeah,
1: baby. <laughs> yeah. It was really the kind of the beginning of the modern era. You know, it's kind of straddled, right? The modern era and kind of the golden age, or I guess the silver age, since everything was in black and white. And you have some of the absolute classics, obviously Psycho, clearly, right? And then also The Innocents, which is, you know, one of the maybe the best like ghost story movie ever made. Uh, I know
0: you, you have a real love for that movie. I
1: really do. I love it so much. There's the, in the opening, and Deborah Kerr was nominated for an Oscar for it, and in the opening, there's like this voiceover of Deborah Kerr saying, I didn't want to kill the children. I only wanted to help them. And I thought, were those your only two options? Like,
0: <laughs> 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 don't hire this nanny. My God. <laughs> um, but
1: aside from that, most of the independent films that were made at the time, again, really spoke to societal issues because it was the, the 1960s. Like, everything was a societal issue. There was, uh, there was the Vietnam War. There was civil, civil rights. rights. There was the pill. There were so many horror films that were sort of based on that particular anxiety caused by the pill. It, there's so many of, like, mutant babies or something that maybe resembled a mutant baby coming back for us. There were so many that were, like, biological horror over the idea that some science might be controlling a woman's body, like this who gets to control a woman's body was, was really, really prevalent in the 60s and into the 70s, and the best, of course, version of that, because who is more concerned about a woman and her ability to control her own body than Roman Polanski? Oh. No. <laughs> I'm actually physically incapable of talking about one of his movies without making a nasty joke like that. But it's a great movie. Can't blame you. <laughs> it's a great movie. But the one movie that encapsulated everything that was going on politically uh, and civilly in the era and also absolutely recreated a genre unto itself was George Romero's Night of the Living Dead.
0: Which just celebrated. I think yesterday was the day, yes. right? As, as we record this podcast, yesterday was the day 50 years that's Since crazy. the release of Night of the Living Dead. And you're right. It still has and so. And
1: Pittsburgh is still a hellhole. <laughs>
0: you were waiting to drop that anvil, boy. Couldn't wait. But yeah, it still has such, such relevance today. Uh, in fact, in a lot of ways, maybe even more so. I mean, we just watched um, a couple of weeks ago. We went to see the IMAX 3D version of Thriller. <laughs> That's been showing before oh the house God, with a clock so in its walls, and you know the, the final scene of Thriller is yeah. so right out of Night of the Living
1: Dead. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And
0: and it's got so much a component of civil rights in it because of Dwayne Jones, the casting yeah. of Dwayne Jones, an African American man. At, first of all, at the time, leading a film, regardless of genre, oh, was yeah. uh, pretty uncommon. Well, and then,
1: and then uh, being the lead opposite uh, a lovely white blonde woman right. uh, was, was very chancy, risky to do at the time. And then also for him to have kind of a, a battle for alpha with the middle-aged white man down the basement. Mm-hmm. And then for him to be really the only one who's, who's smart, who has a good head on his shoulders, who he's the one you should be following. And Romero said, and I don't think this is entirely true, but he said he only made him the lead because he was the best actor. And he is clearly the best actor. But the fact that Dwayne Jones, whether he did it on purpose or didn't do it on purpose, the fact that he is the lead in this movie, and then that incredible gut punch of a oh. montage oh. ending yes. has really sealed this as like a time capsule of, oh. of all of the civil unrest of the 1960s. Yes, because you
0: have law enforcement officers, they're, they're, in the movie, they're concerned about them being zombies. So they're not even waiting, they're just shooting. And, of course, they're shooting at a black man in the house, which, of course, has tremendous social relevance today and has for for all through the decades. But, uh, yeah, I'm kind of with you on that about the motivations of of Romero, but even so, it's part of the genius of this movie, and it's another one you can watch over and over again, and it always is going to have, yeah, yeah, like you say, a gut punch, but an effect of how, and great lines like, yeah, you can shoot him in the head, they they go right up. They go right up. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but the other thing, of course, it did was, was create a new genre. Uh, because yeah. up until Romero, all zombie movies were like that. I walk with a the zombie. They were all the voodoo zombies. Romero was the first one who said, No, they're the undead, and th- they're back now. And also, they're going to bite you, and then you're going to be next. You mm-hmm. know, and and it was it was just it was a watershed moment and really changed the trajectory of horror forever. Oh yeah,
0: and picked up a genre that has been. Over the decades, tweaked with, you know, here and there in, in different ways, some successful, some some not. But it's, it's still one that I think filmmakers are going to go back to in some way or another. I don't, I don't see that ending anytime soon. No, because
1: zombies make a great metaphor for basically anything. They can mm-hmm. stand in for just about anything that you want them to stand in for. So, um, and then, you know, by the 2000s, they could run. Yeah. Which he hated, but that's so much scarier.
0: That's a wrinkle. I mean, if they can catch up with
1: you, that's way (laughs) bigger deal than just, oh, if they outnumber me and I can't get past them, that's not going to, no. Then we're into the 70s. The 70s, which has so many great movies, it has multi-slides.
0: Yeah, we were just talking before we started the presentation here, how the 70s might be the granddaddy of them all for, for horror movies. Really, there's so many... For movies in general, the 70s were just a great time. I was
1: going to say, that's really why. It's because it was such, um, it was like the first great big boom in American cinema for independent film. So And, it, and so you had it, these
0: different filmmakers coming up. Oh, yeah. With different ideas.
1: Right. So you get movies like I mean, you got Scorsese came up in the 70s. Spielberg. You know, right at the end of the 70s with Spielberg. No, I well, saw In the mid 70s, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, uh, and just so many incredible movies like The Godfather, Taxi Driver, One Flew with a Cuckoo's Nest, Chinatown, mm-hmm. Apocalypse Now, Mean Streets, Rocky. It was a huge, huge, huge era for American film. And then in the same way, it really, I mean, it just it spilled over into And, and it was pretty much filmmaking. the birth
0: of the blockbuster. Right. Probably, most people point to Jaws as the birth of the blockbuster. And then, of course, Star Wars came after that. And uh, so it started that whole, especially in the summertime, right. being concerned with what is going to really make bank in the summertime. But uh, So the 70s brought a lot in filmmaking in general, right. but we're talking about horror.
1: Well, and so in the same way that, you know, you can see some of the great, Filmmakers, uh, sort of genre wide. Some of the greatest horror filmmakers came up in mm-hmm. the 70s, right? Cronenberg and uh, Toby Hooper and Wes Craven. And, and then, of course, Stephen King, his first films were being made in the 70s. So it was a huge, it was just a huge, huge time for horror movies. But the the type of horror films that were popular that you could find that kind of have stay, staying power in the 70s, they're um, sort of two. and And I think that you can trace a line from these films directly to the coverage of the Vietnam War. So people were really becoming dulled to seeing violence because they saw, for real, violence for the first time. It was really the first time that the media covered war in yeah, this see it on the way. news. So you yeah. see it all the time. Mm-hmm. And so filmmakers reacted in one of two ways. So it was the, it was the beginning of Savage Cinema, uh, and those were really independent American filmmakers who just came at you with all of the violence that you could take. Um, so, obviously, Last House of Love, Deliverance, holy shit. And then Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I'm just going to kiss it. I love <laughs> <laughs> I the Texas Chainsaw Massacre so much. So, that was the one way, and it's not just these three films, but I mean, they're representative of a particular type of really down and dirty, in your face, envelope pushing, very, very violent, gritty, realistic cinema. And then the other way that they dealt with it were these huge, larger-than-life blockbuster, immerse yourself, forget about it, go to the theater, scare the shit out of you, movies like Jaws and Alien, which were two of the greatest monster movies, if not the two greatest monster movies ever made.
0: Yeah. It's, it's an incredible, incredible one-two there. Of course, Jaws was 75 and Alien was 79, uh, I believe. But yeah, monsters where you you were seeing scenes of monster violence on the screen, unlike anything you had seen before. I mean, even if you go back to Jaws today, okay, that's a big mechanical shark. But still, at the time, I mean, well, I remember seeing it in the theater the weekend it came out, and people were freaking out. I mean, I've told the story before. Somebody, the guy behind me, his popcorn ended up on my head. <laughs> you know, because people had not seen this stuff, and I was like 10 years old, and I uh, thought it was awesome. <laughs> you <know>? But... uh <laughs> But still today it's one of those movies where if I'm flipping the channels and Jaws is on I'm putting the remote down because Jaws is on. <laughs> <laughs> and you know Alien 2.
1: Yeah, Alien 2. Yeah, we'll watch Alien all day long. But then as the sort of as the decade progressed, I think the thing that, the theme that you see the most in horror films from the 70s and then it really spilled into the 80s was this idea of challenging the status quo. The the films of the late 70s are a lot more conservative in nature than people, I think, sometimes like to believe they are because they're scary and they're well-made and they're iconic. But what they're really doing is punishing people for challenging the status quo, right? Sue Snell decided she was going to be nice to the weirdo and let her go to prom. And that was a bad decision. Let's be honest. That was, you know you know what? Unpopular girls don't get to go to the prom because look what happens
0: when you let them go. Look what happens when you're someone allows pj souls to (laughs) to wear a stupid hat to the prom
1: (laughs) look what happens when she babysits
0: (laughs) nice where was that when he did that rim shot but yeah there was uh there was so much going on in the 70s of course the exorcist i think still today i think when people have to pin me down for my favorite horror movie i've got to go to that one it's it's so great for so many ways. It's brilliant. In so many it's ways. brilliant.
1: It's a nearly perfect movie. It had, it had I think, six Oscar nominations.
0: Um, but the crazy thing was you know what? What wasn't, was the wasn't thing? Dick Smith's makeup? Yeah, that's, that's that is crazy. It just staggers me yeah. that he did not. He ended up winning an Oscar, I believe, for um, Amadeus for the makeup. But the fact that he wasn't even nominated for, for Linda Blair's makeup and that just, just kills me.
1: But again, I mean, of all the films on here, uh, I mean, the, the, it was obviously, I mean, The Exorcist was mimicked hundreds and hundreds of times. The one with the most staying power is Halloween. It, it created a genre that overtook the 1980s. But the thing about The Exorcist, I mean, all of these three films, but The Exorcist in particular, is that it really was, it was a single mom, right? It was, a, it was hysteria over the oncoming adolescence of a little girl. It was everything that you might worry about, and then the Catholic Church was going to I was just going
0: to say... You got, you know. <laughs> Usually she funny... leads with the Catholic part, but
1: <laughs> what's funny is that that would never work today. That would never work today, right? And I actually think so. I'm one of the few people. I did not hate the nun. I didn't hate it. I, I had low expectations. I thought it. They had sort of. It looked like a Hammer movie on the inter- insides. So the externals looked great, and it was whatever. It got the Catholic dogma right, where none of those other movies have. I mean. Uh, But it was fine because I had low expectations. I think people hate that movie because not any one of us today wants to see a horror film where the Catholic Church is going to save us. Nobody believes that, right? I'm Catholic, I'm telling you. We don't buy that. So I think that's one of the reasons that that movie didn't work and why this movie wouldn't work today, but that is really what it was saying. It was basically, as much as I absolutely adore this movie, I think that it is a, a brilliant, nearly perfect film, It was just saying a return to (laughs) conventional values is going to save us all.
0: And it's also, regardless of genre, it's a movie that can be taken apart just for its filmmaking and how it is put together by director William Friedkin. I mean, we've mentioned before when we've talked about The Exorcist how how it starts wide yeah. and slowly yeah, start, draws into yeah, that out bedroom. In the, out
1: in the Middle East with those huge expanses, and everybody is just really tiny. And then you're in Georgetown, your exterior, but still everybody kind of fills most of the frame. And then the last, you're inside that bedroom and, and everything cold. is freezing and cold and you can't get anywhere. You just become so claustrophobic and trapped as everybody in the film is. Yeah, it's, it is a masterfully made movie. And we're going to move on to the
0: 80s. Your fave.
1: That isn't even true. I don't know why you say it.
0: Duran Duran. <laughs>
1: Oh, generally speaking, the 80s, yeah. I do like Duran Duran.
0: Duran and Duran.
1: I do. No tyros, no tyros. That's not a lie. We have... This is what most people think of when they think of the 80s. They think of the slasher. Mm-hmm. And most people who love horror love slashers. It's a simple formula. You just sort of find an opportunity to put a bunch of attractive people <clears throat> in jeopardy, far away from any kind of authority figure, and then you just let one... Unstoppable machine, butcher them all one by one by one. <laughs> it's just this nihilistic, voyeuristic pleasure.
0: Um, and this is also where we continue to see the effect of the holdover from blockbusters of the 70s. Now it's expected. What is going to get the biggest bang for the buck? And what still holds true today is a lot of horror movies, even if they're not that successful, they bring a big profit because they're not that expensive to make.
1: Right, and the other thing that really happened in the 80s, MTV made people realize how much money teenagers had. Like, I don't think anybody had any idea how much money teenagers had to spend until, you know, uh, your regular everyday... In the 70s, if somebody sold you know 50,000 copies of an album that was like a big deal you're awesome you're like i don't know who you be blue oyster cult wow you know in the in the in the 80s if you weren't like five times platinum you were a loser you were the blue oyster cult uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so and and then that really that and then MTV sort of this um catering to a lot of flash a short attention span loud fast moving yeah it really, again, it had a lot to do with the rise of the Slasher movie, as did, of course, VHS tape. Because for the first time ever, you could just rent them and take them home. So people were, there was this huge market that had to be filled, and we needed to get shit out to fill it. Which doesn't mean that everything that came out in the 80s was kind of disposable and fun. Although, I mean, there were, how many, there were eight Friday the Thirteenth's in the 1980s. You would there know. Were four. <laughs> there I were four gave up
0: after, I think, two. <laughs>
1: Nightmares on Elm Street and I think there were five Halloweens just in the 1980s London and of course there were dozens and dozens of other kind of uh, less high sort of um, terror know, train
0: you,
1: you like the terror train you do but there were some really good ones that came out as well there were some great movies that came out and there were some great movies that came out in the 80s <laughs> American World from London. Is a brilliant one, and of course, The Shining started the decade, uh, and is just an all-time iconic treasure that everyone should love.
0: Oh yeah, another one that can and frequently is dissected frame by frame for crazy conspiracy theories, which uh, they've <laughs> even made documentaries about. I have. But that's one that continues to get. Uh, b- I have a dress
1: down. of that one as well, and <laughs> then um, and then it's funny because so John Carpenter actually sort of you know answered his iconic and brilliant. I'm not putting down Halloween. It's my ringtone on my phone. I love that movie. But The Thing is a masterpiece, and is, as far as I'm concerned, the best movie he ever made. And it couldn't be any less formulaic, any less any less like Halloween.
0: And it's funny because that is one that was definitely not appreciated when it came out by either... Neither was The Shining, of course. Well, by by critics or any, any moviegoers, because it didn't make much money. But now... Over the years, it is regarded, I think, by most people, and I agree with you, uh, the best movie that he made.
1: And while Poltergeist may not be the very best movie that came out of the 80s, it's the most 80s movie that came out of the 80s. Um, First of all, so Toby Hooper, of course, was the director, but but Steven Spielberg's thumbprints are all over this movie. And in fact, it's really, bear with me, it's just a twisted version of E.T. It's suburban, something that shouldn't be in your house, is in your house now. I don't know if I should keep it or how to get rid of it. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it is. It's just a really, really messed up. Are you proud of me? Ver, he was like,
0: you can't curse at the library. <laughs> <laughs> We've already told him we did a whole podcast about toilets. That's Come on, let's, <laughs> the level up here.
1: So, and I think that it also, I mean, you know, it was so much about suburbia. It was about TV. It was about, in the same way that anything else that Spielberg did at that time period, it was just such a look at sort of Americana in a way that mm-hmm. the films of the 70s really didn't look at it. They looked at, like, hipper things, cooler people, and he was just like, I like people who eat McDonald's, right? This is what we're going to talk about. And um, and it was scary. And Joe Beth Williams is amazing. Yeah, And,
0: and I th- think it had those it had those themes of, you know, s- s- suburbia sort of running amok. I mean, because what did they do to make that suburbia? They moved the bodies. They moved, they moved, they the, moved bodies. the headstones, George. They, that's right. They didn't move the bodies because they ended up in the swimming that's pool. That's right.
1: They did. And there's a clown, Silas.
0: Burn them alive. <laughs> Inside joke for the Fright Clubbers, but Silas, so <laughs> Silas gets it.
1: So we're moving into the 90s, which was a, a weird period because... There was really nothing to be mad about, and yet if you listen to any of the music of the 90s, God, they were so mad!
0: Alanis Morissette was pretty mad. She was mad.
1: Nirvana was mad. They were all super mad, they and I, mad. I can't remember why. Because, <laughs> I mean, there were no major wars. There was, like, no major uprising. There was, I mean, there just wasn't that much in the 90s to be that mad about. And what that means is, we have got a big mishmash, really, of horror films. Mm-hmm. Um, we have some of the greatest horror movies that were made by studios. So that was an interesting thing that happened was that really big directors decided to make really great, huge blockbuster like awards kind of caliber horror films. Um, and thank you, by the way. <laughs> so this is the other one I want to kiss. Silent Salinas, <laughs> all time favorites, my favorite movie of all time. Cause it's a perfect movie, right? It won all five Oscars, which is almost unprecedented. Certainly for a horror film, unprecedented director, film actor, actress, screenplay gave us, Among the best villains ever. It was a feminist film. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I love Ted Levine so much. Rubs the lotion
0: on its skin.
1: (laughs) And then Max Cady, which was, first of all, only Scorsese Scorsese would have the balls to remake Cape Fear because it was such a great movie in the The first place. The original, yeah. The original. And he did, uh, of course, he did a masterful job. Because he's going, oh, I'm so glad Hope Madden think I did a good job (laughs) with that movie. (laughs) gonna sleep easy tonight but it was just fun that it, it, it's almost like it's almost like these huge people were like you know it's the 90s uh, what am I gonna do now it's like the 80s are over uh, we're not mad about anything Let's make like a scary movie so it was so much fun it was super fun in that way and then there were a bunch of things that predicted what was going to happen next so the sixth sense just predicted that M. Night Shyamalan was going to be his huge giant success and he was totally going to trap himself, paint himself into a corner, was going to have a really hard time to get out of that corner in the two thousands, but he was going to bounce back in the two thousand tens. We have a
0: lot of hope for glass. We do we have really a lot of do. hope for glass. But M Night had a big strong out of the gate and then he had uh, some problems, but we, we think he's coming coming back to form, hopefully. But the other I
1: mean the the, the two other really big influences in the nineties, one was Japanese horror. So this is audition from Takashi Mike. It's the best ever Japanese horror film. But Japanese horror became really popular in the United States. And what we saw then in the 90s was this huge wave of remakes of Japanese horror movies that was going to last all through the 2000s. And then, of course, The Blair Witch Project, which was made for $3,000. It made more than what was like 200,000 times that much money. Yeah,
0: just insane.
1: (laughs) And then people recognized how much money you could make on horror movies. And also that you could do a found footage movie and your movie could just look like crap for no good reason. You could just make a movie that looked like crap and people were still going to watch it and we're still going to force you to watch it 20 years
0: later. And you could have a viral campaign, yeah. which none will ever, I don't think any viral campaign will ever eclipse that. No, uh, But uh, that was certainly got people thinking that way. You know, you get stuff out there, you plant a seed, and pretty much, you know, the whole country thinks that this is really true.
1: But the biggest game changer in the 1990s was Scream. Uh, Wes Craven, as he had done uh, in the 70s with Last House on the Left, as he did in the 80s with Nightmare on Elm Street in the 90s, he basically changed the direction of horror movies Mm -hmm. uh, by uh, making a film that was meta. It's easily the first movie that ever used the term meta. And, uh, and, and making a comment on horror films, commenting on horror films, but then also taking all of these attractive sort of WB stars and putting them in this movie. All of the rest of the horror movies that came out the rest of this decade were these pretty WB stars in horror comedies like Urban Legend, Urban Legend 2, Bloody Mary. I mean, they just... Uh, know that's what all... you did last summer. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> you had, blocked that, had <laughs> blocked that one out? I had blocked that one out. You're right, though. He, he, it's another um, mark for just how great Wes Craven was to be able to reinvent the whole genre again just by going back and deconstructing the tropes. I mean, it's brilliant when you watch it. His, his tropes. Got, you, yeah, you've got the characters talking about, okay, now this happens. And now you've got to have this, and you've got to have kids that get killed after they have sex, and you have to have this, and somebody says, I'll be right back. Yeah. And you know, and it's, it's great the way they did it because it's fun, and, but yet it's still bloody and right. scary.
1: And it's great the way that Skeet Ulrich just looked just like Johnny Depp,
0: right? Because <laughs> of course he put Johnny Depp in his first movie,
1: and then you know he put Skeet Ulrich. He didn't turn out to be a Johnny Depp, but still he was so. cute. He was more of a Skeet. He, yeah, he was more of a Skeet. He was so cute, and that moves us into the first decade of the 2000s. Shit got real. I did Ooh. it. I cursed. I did it. Um,
0: Do we have a swear jar in the library?
1: <laughs> I'm a swear wolf. You can be a werewolf. I'm a swear wolf. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, really, really, really great, really violent movies came Ooh. out in the early 2000s. Like, just game-changing, amazing. 28 days later, Danny Boyle, so he was a great indie director, decided he was just going to shut down London. He was going to show us Killian naked. And, and he was going to—it was the scariest movie. So we have a friend who's a huge, huge, huge horror movie fan. He was afraid to go. Dave Mann. was afraid to go see 28 <laughs> Days Later. And then that was one of the things, too, is that so in the 2000s, you had Netflix just starting out. You had VOD just starting out. You had all of these outlets that were desperate for content. So foreign films, foreign horror films flooded the United States, which was awesome. Australian horror movies, a super favorite of ours. We've got Wolf Creek, which is another. It was such a horrifying film. Good for
0: you because that's a tough watch. It is.
1: It is. I reviewed this movie for the other paper at the time. And it's funny, um, Roger Ebert was still alive, and he reviewed it as well in the same week. I'm sure we had the same number of readers. And um, he gave it no, he wouldn't give it a a score of any kind. He called it a snuff film, and then no one should see it. I gave it four stars.
0: (laughs) And that's the difference between Hope and Roger Ebert. (laughs)
1: That's it. It was amazing, it was stunning. Uh, John Jarrett was, again, one of the greatest villains ever. It's and so
0: creepy and scary and violent, it's my so lord.
1: Violent. It's so violent. And then the, one of the other things, yeah, that we saw happen um, in the 2000s, the first decade, was he didn't have to be a slasher to have a strong female lead. Uh, and that just kind of came out of nowhere. You and know? they didn't
0: have to be the final girl.
1: No, no, they could be the villain. Mm-hmm. If you guys don't know, well, some of you know this because you've been to Freight Club before. So this is The Loved Ones, also from Australia. If you haven't seen it, you must see it. It's glorious. And that's Lola. And whatever Lola wants, Lola gets. <laughs>
0: I've heard that somewhere.
1: Right. Of course, The Descent, which is incredibly scary, incredibly violent. Uh, all of the main characters are female. Even some of the monsters are clearly female. Yeah. You know, and And it was just an interesting thing that there wasn't really, in particular, anything in society that was sort of determining you know, I am woman, hear me roar. It was just that like suddenly people were kind of going, wait, why not though? You know, and you go back and you watch some of the slashers some of the other movies, you're going, why is your shirt off right now? Like you're at a job interview. Why are you, what's going on here? (laughs) And it was just like, you know, it was really fascinating how, especially in the second half of the 2000s, we just had a lot of really great female characters and they weren't relegated to that, smart, virginal Jamie Lee Curtis, love Jamie Lee Curtis, love Halloween, but I mean, that became such a, cl- such a crutch for horror films, and then, and then all of her slutty friends get killed, but she's virtuous, and she's smart, so she's going to figure it out, she's going to be the final girl, I'm not saying that's a not feminist, but it's not feminist, you know, and this was just like, we're not even going to think about it, we just have these great characters, and it happens that they are female, which is awesome, and of course, let the right one in, she's not really female but she's played by a girl, so we're going to count that because we really want you to see it. But the biggest movie of the first decade that had the biggest impact on what was going to happen the rest of the, f- the first decade of the 2000s was The Ring. Because uh, it was so popular and so successful and not rated R, right? That we suddenly had millions and millions and millions of J horror remakes, American remakes, PG thirteen remakes that made billions of dollars, and each one was a little bit less worth watching than the one before. <laughs> yeah. But for quite a while, they—I mean—they were decent movies. The Grudge is fun, um, and, and and The Ring is brilliant.
0: Yeah, as we've pointed out, I think both of us like The Ring better than Ringu. Yeah really, as an effective movie. And it, um, it started, a, a, like you said, a, a wave of uh, the, the J remakes. But also, it's the one, I think, the one movie we point to or scary PG thirteen horror. Oh, it's easiest. It's, it's definitely was still the scariest. Watching PG-13 it today, movie. I'm thinking, man, that's scary yeah. for a PG thirteen movie. And
1: it's different things that scare different people. George loves the actual videotape that they watch because it's very creepy. So creepy. So many people are bothered by that horse. You know that horse thing and like the <laughs> wheel of the boat that bothers a lot of people. And then of course there's like the face that face that they're all making after they see her. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's like it's uh, it's Brian Cox. You know when when uh, in the bathtub. Um, no, it's like he the, she's. Naomi Watts is looking through these boxes in his living room, and he lives on a lighthouse. so You keep seeing the light go around. Oh, yeah. And then you can't see him anymore until so the light comes back around, and you're like, Brian Cox is coming closer. I think <laughs> he's part of the reason that that little girl is so mean. <laughs> just
0: get out. <laughs> and just the image of her crawling out of the TV. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, my and then God. that herky-jerky yeah. motion that they were able to have, well, yeah. the, the actor that ended up playing... For that scene, but the, that's become quite a, a lasting image as well.
1: Yeah, and unfortunately, all of these things have been so ripped off and watered down, and there have been so many Ring movies since then that I think it's easy to look at this in the same way that it's easy to look at the beginning of the Slasher films and like roll your eyes. But this is a great movie. It is. I mean, it's not John Carpenter's Halloween grave, but it's a great movie.
0: It's really effective.
1: Now we're on to the greatest decade ever. <laughs> Honestly, horror movies are so amazingly brilliant right now. It's uh, we've never seen anything like it, and part of it is part of it is on demand. It's that you can get them everywhere, and so everybody is making them, and uh, you can. They're looking for films from every place in the world, which is so great. And you just have them at your fingertips. You have Shutter, and you can watch them all day long, or you can just rent anything you want to. And we're seeing some incredibly high quality horror films because of that.
0: Yeah, we are, and we're seeing a type, a a genre of horror films that have become, unfortunately, very polarizing between horror audiences, which I think is too bad because there's room for everybody. There's room for the slasher. There's room for the jump scares, which I've said many times is not my favorite. Movies with jump scares and music stabs do nothing for me. But movies like Babadook, movies like The Witch, It Follows, Um, It Comes at Night. Those are the ones that get to hereditary. me, the, 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 hereditary, the psychological right. horror. Now I know it's not everybody's bag. Right? It's not, and we've gotten into some very serious conversations about people who say those aren't scary. But that's, you know, that's one of the things that makes people love horror movies because what scares someone can be very unique to that individual. Right.
1: Absolutely. But the other thing that we've seen um, is that you know uh, it, a lot, people don't go to the theater anymore. It costs too much money. So there has to be a reason. And to sit in a big, dark room with a bunch of other people and get scared seems to be a reason. Because so many of the huge blockbusters, that, so many more of the giant studio blockbusters are horror films in the last 10 years than have ever been in any sort of spate at a time. It's amazing. So we start with Split, which made billions, billions of dollars, right? It. How much money did that make? Um, a lot. A lot. The Conjuring made a ton of money and cost no money to make. And Get out. We're so proud of Get Out, right? <laughs> because not only is it that thought provoking, amazing, really thoughtful, well crafted horror sort of art house movie, it made billions and billions of dollars, it won an Oscar for best screenplay, and it also clearly reflects the social anxiety of our modern time.
0: And I think that's what Jordan Peele was aiming for to have two suburban white people say that they're proud of it. I right. think that's yeah. really gonna be a feather in his cap. Yeah.
1: He and Scorsese are gonna be talking later about how excited they are about this podcast.
0: But it, it is. It's so great as first of all, just as a scary movie. You can tell someone who loves the genre made it. Yes, you has absolutely that stamp can. all over it. Yeah, yeah. But the the statement that he was able to make with that type of genre to me still just blows my mind. It works so well and the fact that it made as much money as it did and the fact that it got him an oscar and it's got this people talking i just I, I love this movie so much and that the fact that it exists and people went to see it and people love it and talk about it
1: and i think uh what i mean he clearly does love horror movies which i always i mean that's always so like heartening when you're watching a horror film is like you're one of us that is so nice <laughs> one but even of... for right one of us the opening sequence is and, and actually if, it reminded me a little bit of the opening sequence of It Follows because it's a John Carpenter opening, mm-hmm. um, and and so basically, the way the way this movie opens, picture a, a a lovely white girl walking by herself in the dark up a road. You are automatically immediately, you're you're inclined to feel anxiety for her because she is vulnerable and she's a victim and something bad is going to happen to her. And he said. Oh, you think that's bad? You just try doing it as a black man. Just try doing it as a black man and you're watching it going, "Oh my god, this is so true." And it was just amazing the way that he could subvert really common horror tropes that we've all just come to accept and 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 show how show what the black experience is in the United States.
0: Yeah, and just take the idea of cultural appropriation to the very oh, end yeah. degree of actual what they've termed <laughs> cultural harvest. Right. And to make that point, is just, it's just one of the many brilliant things, not only about the script, but about how he directed the movie. I and just, all of the performances are stunning. Yes. So that brings us up pretty much to today.
1: It does. It does. We're in a good place. We are in a good place because still this month, we get to see the new Halloween and Suspiria.
0: Yeah. Good stuff. Good yeah. stuff coming. I think we're going to continue to see those other types of, of filmmakers, new filmmakers come up with new ideas and some of the the, the filmmakers that were new just in the last few years bring us their next project. And it's a very, very exciting time, especially for, for, for movie fans in general, because you said of the, all the, the demand for content, mm-hmm. but also for horror movies. There's yep. just great stuff out there all yep. the time, no matter what kind of scare you prefer. It's out there.
1: And you know where you can find all of those scares, George? Where could that be? At the Nightmares Film Festival. Yeah, Which is, which is going to be like point. right after this comes out. Pivot point.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll be there looking for you. It is really the place to be. If, if, see if,
1: how much better I am at this when I don't drink? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Who has made that point before? <laughs> <I> oh <don't> no. <know. laughs> yeah, we'd love to see you at Nightmares Film Festival, uh, October 18th through the 21st at Gateway Film Center. I know we've mentioned it a lot, but that's because it's worth it. Great for fans of horror, great for fans of film. The community is is awesome, so look it up on uh, on social media. And we'd love to see it. You've got time to join us. Uh, we hope, hope you can make it. And uh, looking forward to, boy, the rest of the month for MadWolf.com and Fright Club is busy, 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 but it's going to be fun.
1: Yep. So we've got, yeah, we've got G- Gateway Film Center next week. Yeah. And then Nightmares Film Festival. Then we are going to do an entire podcast on The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's a big month. Yeah. Big month. Lots of stuff coming up. So let us know what you thought about this. Anything that we missed? Anything we got wrong? No. But uh, you can <laughs> you can let us know. Easiest way to reach out is on Twitter. We're at Fright Club Pod. I uh, always love to keep the conversation going on Facebook and Instagram. We're at Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website, as always, for the written reviews of all our movies and all the other fun stuff is MadWolf.com. So I think that pretty much wraps it up. I think it does. We want to thank, of course, Golden Spiral Media, who... uh. Puts out this podcast for us, and uh, it should be up here in just a few days. Yep. We'll get it all edited and put together, and it'll be out. You can find it on wherever you listen to podcasts. And we or, want
1: to thank the Upper Arlington Library. For yes, us thank out. you very much thank for you the very invite. Much. We had
0: a a great time, and as we talked, I think we're going to be doing some more things here. So that's uh, we're looking forward to that. So that should be exciting. So uh, keep in touch if you can. If not, we hope to see uh, in and around some of the. Horror movie events here uh, at the Gateway Film Center in Columbus, Ohio. And until next time, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Fright Club Podcast. Stay Frightful, my friends. Thanks, you guys.